sometimes I get, you know, labeled as a turf. And it's frustrating to me because I'm like, clearly you haven't read my work because one of the arguments I make actually is that trans-inclusive feminism is this offspring of radical feminism, right? So the idea of what it means to be a woman and especially this pathologization of fertility and even the practice of seeing women's liberation as being about disrupting their normal physiology through technological means. Like that's that comes from feminism. That's downstream from feminism, right? And so women to be successful in society, to be fully formed human beings, they they essentially need to go to war with their own bodies and use technology to control and resist their natural physiology. And that is, you know, the that's exactly, I think, what the transgender movement is seeking to do, right? To completely liberate this self-determined, self-determining will from the natural limits, especially when it comes to fertility and sexuality. We are wandering between two worlds. Modernity as we knew it is passing away, and the next world is yet to be born. Like Dante, we are in a dark woods, struggling to know how to think and how to live. Virgil guided Dante with the light of natural reason. Then Beatrice illuminated the path to paradise with Christian revelation. Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast, where Christian faith and reason illuminate the best of academic thinking and research. How should we think and live in this time between worlds? At Beatrice Institute, we take our bearings from the good, the true, and the beautiful. I'm Grant Martzoff. I direct Beatrice Institute's Personalism and Public Policy Initiative. How should we organize our common life to promote the flourishing of the person made in the image of God? So my guest today is Abigail Favalli. She's professor of practice at the McGrath Institute for Church Life in Notre Dame. She writes extensively on women, feminism, and gender from a Catholic perspective. Her most recent book, Genesis of Gender, was an excellent treatment of these topics. So my wife and I both read it and recent, recently with great interest. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, so let's, we'll go ahead and get started right at the beginning. So what is the difference between paradigm and ideology? That's a good question. That's a good question because in the book, I specifically chose to use the phrase gender paradigm instead of gender ideology. And part of that was a rhetorical strategy because I think I think as soon as you use the term gender ideology, then it's it's kind of like a dog whistle, like a political dog whistle a little bit, right? You're kind of signaling a certain tribal affiliation. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to hopefully have some readers who are maybe in the more kind of messy middle on this conversation. That's one reason why I use the word paradigm. But I think one thing, one reason that paradigm is more helpful is that I think that even people who aren't consciously ideologically committed to the premises of the gender paradigm were all nonetheless influenced by it, right? So I think a lot of, especially young people, they're not necessarily ideologues, although you definitely have ideologues, but they're kind of swept up in this trend and borrowing some terms and some labels and some categories for interpreting their own experience. And some of them do, I think, get kind of ideologically captured and really swept up in it. But I think there's a lot of people, and I've talked to people, you know, I've talked to people who identify as trans, I've talked to people who engage with the gender paradigm, but who don't necessarily buy into all the ideological commitments. And so I thought it would be helpful to make a distinction there, because I do think that there's a dominant cultural framework 
that is shaping how we interpret our experiences of gender. And that for some people that becomes an ideological commitment. For some people, it's more like the water they're swimming in, right? So what did you find thrilling or liberating as a young evangelical about women slash gender studies? Well, someone actually talking about women, for one thing, like in, in, a, in a serious way. You know, I grew up in small town Mormon land as an evangelical Christian. And to be honest, I don't think I ever heard a sermon about a woman. I never saw a woman preach. I had this NIV student study Bible that had all these like tracks that you're supposed to, you know, you kind of check off and you read. And the one that I read over and over and over was women in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. So I kind of immersed myself in these stories because I was hungry for women's stories and women's stories that were interesting and kind of weird. And I was interested in Old Testament women that were a little crazy, like Jezebel, you know, she's just the best. I still think she's probably the best villain ever in any kind of like literary or historical genre. She's just amazing. But I mean, in a bad way, in a nefarious way, in a villainous way. So I was hungry for women's stories. I was hungry for a deeper exploration of what it means to be a woman. And I think part of that hunger was that I didn't really fit the kind of narrow script that I was given about womanhood. And there were a lot of, you know, I have a lot of male typical traits in some ways. And so I think that primed the question for me, like, okay, I, I'm a girl, I'm fine with being a girl, you know, that the idea that I wasn't a girl wasn't really on the table, right? Which, I, which makes me wonder how I would be growing up now. But nonetheless, that wasn't a narrative I had access to back then. So I was like, okay, I'm a girl, I'm going to embrace it. But yet I felt this sense that I needed to like prove that being a girl was interesting and, you know, I could keep up with the boys. And so when I got to college and began reading initially, especially feminist biblical criticism, because as an evangelical, so much of the debates about women revolve around how do you interpret this first Corinthians verse and this, you know, verse from Timothy. And so that's where I kind of started. And at first I thought, yes, this is amazing. This is exactly what I've been looking for. Finally, serious people are saying serious things about these questions I'm interested in. How do you think it would have changed your experience if evangelicals had a more elevated view of the Blessed Virgin? Oh, <laughs> I love that question now. Well, certainly, I, I mean, I can only, you know, I can only speculate, but I think that would have changed things. You know, one of the, one of the things that first attracted me to Catholicism was simply the iconography, the pre- the icon, the iconic presence of women in Catholic spaces, right? Because it, you know it was this wordless expression, but this display of the sacredness of being a woman and the goodness of being a woman, and that having a kind of power that's related to holiness, right? Like a spiritual power, not this kind of temporal understanding of power, and. I wonder now how I would have grown up with that. You know, my kids, I'm raising my kids Catholic. And so I look at them and I think, wow, they have access to all these, like this fullness, right? Because for a time I veered really hard into feminism and then it was just like, everything was about women. It was like, okay, I'm going to pray to God as mother. You know, I'm only, you know, it was almost like this kind of goddess worship, strange, you know, world where I did basically the, the inverse of what, I was experiencing, right? Because I think in in the evangelical context in which I grew up, it was like all the feminine aspects of Christianity were like lopped off. And then in with that imbalance, then these beautiful masculine metaphors, they be kind of they kind of become 
too loud or too, too dominant, right? Because there's no counterbalance. And I went, I kind of veered directly in the opposite direction where I, I kind of looked at with suspicion on any masculine language related to Christianity, right? So within Catholicism, I feel like I've, I've been able to enter this world where both of those notes, so to speak, like the note of the feminine, the note of the masculine are being sung and there's this beautiful harmony to it. So I think that, I don't know, I can only speculate, but I, I would think I would have loved that, you know, and I've never had any hangups about Mary aside from like a tiny bit of like scrupulosity about how exactly I should pray to Mary, you know, initially when I became Catholic. But if anything, it felt like it was something I was you know, hungry for. Yeah. One thing that really surprised my wife, well, before and after our conversion to Catholicism was the elevated view of women, particularly in the tradition. She got very interested in Catherine of Siena and this whole idea that Catholicism is anti-woman. She went in expecting that and was so surprised with how untrue that is. Yeah, exactly. So I mentioned, you know, being super into the female characters in the Bible, but as an evangelical, you, know, you basically have the New Testament and your local church. And that's that's like the vision of Christian history that you're given. So I had no access to this amazing genealogy of the faith that, and again, at first, I first encountered it in Anglican context. And Catherine of Siena, yeah, she was one of my first saints that I fell in love with, you know, and I, it was so, it was so wonderful to be able to discover that genealogy that I'd never have had access to. So in a, an early paper, I think it was in First Things that you wrote, you made the case that there's some creeping Gnosticism within American evangelicalism, or American evangelicals, especially vulnerable to some of the arguments within the gender paradigm, given that sort of latent Gnosticism. Yes, I think that's absolutely true. So something that, ah, I, yeah, I have so many thoughts on this. So what inspired that piece was my experience teaching an honor seminar to freshmen at a Christian college. And almost all of our students were raised in the church. And we spent that semester going through literature and theology and philosophy of the early church and reading scripture. And I was just fascinated by the fact that some of them had not even really heard that there will be a resurrection of the body. And that idea freaked them out, right? And those that were familiar with it had interpreted it in such a way that it was almost like this ghost body that we will have, right? But there was just this undercurrent of suspicion toward the body or very much this interpretation of the Pauline language of flesh and spirit in a literal way where you have like the body is bad and the spiritual component is, is good. And so it's wonderful, like in that semester, we would actually read Augustine's City of God and he has this whole discourse on how people misinterpret Paul there, right? And that Paul's talking about flesh as in the fallen man, body and soul, and spirit as the spiritual man, body and soul, right? So I I absolutely think that this, this denigration of the body that's present in evangelicalism, it it does perhaps prime evangelicals to to more readily accept the idea that your body could be wrong while you have this inner spiritual self that speaks the truth about who you are. And I remember when I was in graduate school, I was doing, when I was writing my dissertation, one of my things that I regret now <laughs> is that in my dissertation, I give this, I basically characterize Christian tradition as dualistic and denigrating of the body. And I, I, I spoke with a kind of authority that now I think I should not have had because I just thought, well, I was raised Christian, so I have this authority to be able to speak on Christianity. And, you know, Augustine was 
uh, villain, I guess, in that narrative. But I never actually read Augustine, right? I read feminist theologians talking about Augustine's dualism and his integration of the body. And so I had this framework where I was like, you know, feminist theory is this antidote to the dualism of Christianity that denigrates the body. So it was so wild to actually encounter some of the Catholic intellectual tradition and to to suddenly realize, oh, wow, this is that story I'd been told and that I myself had told is not true, right? In fact, recently I was having a, I I was on a podcast with the America Magazine kind of having this dialogue with a, a theologian who has different perspectives than I do on gender. And toward the end of the conversation, I was so fascinated where she actually just came out and said that she thinks the Catholic Church values the body too much. And I just, I thought that was such a fascinating moment because I was like, yeah, you know, I'm actually glad you said that out loud because I think that's true. I think that feminism, right, has has really gone down this road of Gnosticism. And I have lots of theories about that. But I think it's true that Christian tradition, especially in Catholicism, safeguards the dignity of the body specifically in a way that almost every other philosophical and theoretical system has abandoned. So I do want to shift gears a little bit and talk about the relationship between sex and gender. So it seems to me that at its core, we refer, what you refer to as radical feminism, their biggest contribution was to remind us or to show us that there's this performative nature of our sex bodies, right? That there are all sorts of socially mediated ways to express our sex bodies in public. We seem to understand that sex social roles are malleable across time and culture. That seems self-evident, right? So to me, this seems rather uncontroversial that there's some social expression of our sex bodies that, again, is culturally conditioned, socially constructed. So in what ways are radical feminists truly radical? Or not. Right. And it depends on what you mean by radical feminist too. But so I would I guess I would pick up here, maybe to pick up this question with Judith Butler, where you have in the postmodern feminist theory, which is really where gender theory comes from, right? Like there's this you can even just watch this shift happen in what women's studies departments are named, right? First we have women's studies departments in like the seventies and eighties and 90s. And then sort of in the late 90s, there begins to be like women's and gender studies departments. And now there's been a shift where it's almost all gender studies departments. So I think that shift, a lot of that shift comes through postmodern feminist theory, postmodern gender theory. So Judith Butler, what she's saying is radical because she's not just saying what you just said, which is that there are a lot of culturally conditioned expressions and norms associated with sex. What she's saying is that sex itself is a social construct, right? Even our our tendency to categorize human beings in these two discrete sexes, that that's a a social fiction rather than a matter of fact. So essentially, or non-essentially, anti-essentially, what she's saying, sorry, that's a little private joke because she's very anti-essentialist, but basically what Judith Butler is saying is that everything's gender. Everything is the social construct. Everything is just the performance. So sex itself, this kind of ground of reality or facticity that second wave feminist theory still held on to, she really pulls the rug out and says, no, everything is gender. This socially compelled performance that we're all unconsciously doing, which that creates the illusion of something real. And that I think is a radical, like anti-realist. Unpack that for me a little bit. And when I read that in one of your papers, I just, I can't wrap my head around the ways in which like, for instance, my penis is a social construct. How Give me a little more sense of, of what that means. It seems like that's one of the most realist things that I have. Yes. And it's, you know, I, I do my best to really give as much of 
a charitable interpretation as I can. But it's hard for me because I also don't really understand how you could make this argument. But essentially what she's saying is there's all kinds of physical differences among human beings. But we have chosen of all these like constellation of characteristics to categorize people as male and female according to this, what she would probably say is an arbitrary kind of assemblage of characteristics. Why not characterize people according to hair color or eye color, right? Now, of course, the elephant in the room for me is like, well, because those particular sets of difference are the only way that new human beings come into the world, right? So that I feel like is is like the, the elephant in the room with Judith Butler. And I think it's important to realize that her goal is to dismantle heteronormativity. So she really wants to deconstruct the idea that there's something natural about heterosexuality. Like that's her foremost goal. So it's it's this kind of unquestioned premise. Like she's starting from the premise that there's nothing natural about heterosexuality. So she she kind of has to then somehow deconstruct sex, right? So it's not as if like genitalia, like the, the matter of genitalia themselves are socially constructed, but our naming of them and our associating those things with these broader categories of maleness and femaleness of man and woman. That is the social construct. So to what extent, well, I don't know if Judith Butler did this herself or it was done later. To what extent did her thinking have to be adapted in order to make space for what we would call trans women? Did it have to be adapted or is it just in there? No, it had to be adapted, right? So then this is a, this is a really fascinating, you know, transition <laughs> in gender theory, I think, that I'm still thinking about and trying to trying to disentangle. But yes, right. So if you if you think about her her most influential idea, this idea that gender is a performance and that sex itself is also that gendered performance or that social construct, that actually doesn't that's not very hospitable to the narrative that I have this inner essence that is being expressed when I perform my gender in this particular way, right? So there's a certain transgender narrative, you know, I'm born in the wrong body that is very essentialist and is, is I guess, asserting a new realism, maybe a Gnostic realism, right? That, and that really doesn't align with, with Butler, at least early Butler, right? So in her later works, she, I mean, the nice thing about being a postmodern is you can just really just, you know, kind of hedge and like duck and roll and then, you know, use some obscure language and get yourself back on the right side of history, which she does in her, in her later work. But what I see, I guess what still intrigues me about this, this broader question is that there is now this constant equivocation that I see both in academic gender studies, but also in kind of the popular versions of these debates about gender. And that is gender is talked about in this Butlerian mode as a social construct. Like that's kind of a cliche now. Gender is a social construct. Like you'll still see that in every sociology textbook, any gender studies textbook, right? You will see gender is a social construct. You'll see that sentence probably early on in the introductory chapter. But then there's also this claim of gender identity theory, which is that gender is this internal sense of self. And increasingly, that gender identity is being talked about as if it's if it's, if it's pre-social and it can actually be at odds with someone's socialization. So a child who's been, who is, who's been assigned male at birth, quote unquote, and who's been socialized as a male can suddenly realize that he's really a girl 
Okay. So that's a very different concept of what gender is because that posits gender as this pre-social essence that's innate and that is so immutable that the body has to be all altered to accommodate it. That's, that seems to me very, <laughs> almost at odds and contradictory with Butler's idea of a social construct. What's but one piece, Yes, exactly. And one, but what, here's what I think has happened, why, how the dominoes have fallen this way, at least one, at least the theoretical thread of it, because this radical social constructionism around gender basically cleared the deck for a new kind of essentialism to, to be layered onto it and accept it. And I think that's because people, human beings by nature are not anti-realists. Right. I think Aristotle's right that all human beings by nature desire to know. And we approach the world as if there is something real. We think about identity as if we do have selves that can be expressed and revealed to the world. Right. And so I think in, in this kind of aporia, basically, or this lacuna, I don't know what metaphor you want to use, where the meaning of sex was deconstructed, that made room for this new gender identity essentialism to take hold. And that's what's fascinating to me because it's really taken hold in the institutions now. But the gender construct is still there. So there's this constant equivocation that you see. So I do want to take a little step back and talk historically. So one thing that's always been difficult for me is that when I look at the term gender, there's clear biological and procreative etymology, right? Like we think of genitals, generative, generation, and birth, I think if I can remember back to my Latin, is genos, G-E-N-O-S. So was the use of the term gender to refer to social roles wholly invented in the mid-20th century? So if I talked to someone in, say, 1840, and I said gender, would they assume that I was talking about their body? Or has this been wholly invented, or is this a phrase that transformed? Or is it just there was a break in the mid-20th century where we invented this thing called gender as a social construct? So the word gender was around Okay, prior to that, it was around, it was a linguistic term. You would speak about, you know, words have gender, like in certain language, masculinity and femininity. And you would also, you could also see the phrase of, say, like the feminine gender or the masculine gender, right? Because it was, it was used more almost like a class or a category, like a group category. So you would have to kind of add some kind of, you know, what I would now call a gendered term to gender to make it elicit that sense of masculinity or femininity. So it, it, it was already kind of there a little bit on the scene, but I think the linguistic shift of one, having sex come to be shorthand for sexual intercourse, and then that made it, you know, kind of a, a difficult, a more difficult word, a more tricky word to use. But then also, I think in the mid, in the mid 20th century, that's when you had John Money was the first one to really, the sexologist basically borrowed that term to begin to name basically that idea that there are, there is a part of maleness and femaleness that can be culturally inculcated, right? Like, so for Simone de Beauvoir, for example, in The Second Sex, like she's conceptually anticipating a lot of the ideas in gender theory, but she doesn't use the term gender. I've, I read, I've been reading Edith Stein a lot and I actually, you know, she doesn't really use the term gender too, but I did see it once in her, in one of her essays. And it, again, it was in this kind of like generic sense where she's, she's basically saying like the cat, you know, the feminine category, right? So it doesn't have like, it's not laden with that meaning, but I do think it, it kind of served as an alternate term, like a synonym of the category of sexed human beings. So I've begun to wonder recently if this is even a useful term at all anymore, because it seems to imply, again, to your point, you know, there's a sense in which it was a, a publicly enacted social role of the sex body, 
and now it's this sort of internal felt feeling. Those seem to be different concepts. And I wonder if we just need to say other things in order to express what we're actually expressing because it creates, or is the confusion part of, is the confusion a bug or a feature of the paradigm? Would it be helpful to have new words? Do we continue using this word given the tremendous difficulty in sussing out what we mean by it? This is a great question. And this is one that I am wrestling with and have been since I was writing the book. I'm actually writing a paper right now called Is Gender Too Troubled? That I'm going Because I want to think through this question. I actually don't really know where I'm going to land. I do think it's a feature rather than a bug in the gender paradigm, right? Because one of the one of the premises of the gender paradigm is this postmodern idea that all of reality is linguistically constructed. And if you really think that everything, you know, knowledge, reality is is a, is a linguistic and social construct, then it makes sense to use language in this un, uprooted way where you can just kind of change the meaning of words for whatever happens to be politically efficacious at the time where, you know, equivocation, where it's a problem for me, because I do think, you know, that Aristotle's principle of non-contradiction is true. Like it bothers me. So it's a bug. But in terms of the gender paradigm, I think it's a feature. But as, as for the question about whether it's useful to retain, I, the re in general, I think in law, for example, it should be sex-based. So I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of opportunity to, and when I can use the word sex in a way that's clear, I'll try to use sex-based language. But at the same time, because you're right, like there's this entomological root to the word gender that I think could be reclaimed. And also in terms of just reaching a readership and, you know, the way people are thinking, like people are using the term gender in, in the discourse right now, right? So in some ways I'm like, okay, I'm going to use this term because I want to engage with this conversation but I'm going to make sure that I define it in the way that, I, that I'm using it. But one, one thing I've been thinking about actually is that, because here's something, gender theory, whether it's postmodern gender theory or even the gender identity theory, they will say that, oh, you shouldn't conflate sex and gender. They're totally different things. And I'm kind of like, no, actually you should conflate them. So I, th I, I encourage, I actively encourage people to conflate sex and gender when they're proposing a positive understanding of gender rather than just maybe critiquing a concept of gender. So coming back to this question of the relationship between feminism and transfeminism. So is there an ironic sense in which the trans woman, so a biological man who identifies as a trans woman, is the ideal modern woman in feminist ideology, completely liberated from fertility? I love this question. You know, I, this is, sometimes I get, you know, labeled as a turf. And it's frustrating to me because I'm like, clearly you haven't read my work because one of the arguments I make actually is that trans-inclusive feminism is this offspring of radical feminism, right? So, so the idea of what it means to be a woman and especially this pathologization of fertility and even the practice of seeing women's liberation as being about disrupting their normal physiology through technological means. Like that's, that comes from feminism. That's downstream from feminism, right? So I really see these two things, like even though they're kind of engaged in this like apocalyptic war right now, I really see one as kind of downstream from the other. So in the book, I talk about how feminist theory, at least since the second wave, has always been very anti-essentialist and very unwilling to like hold on to the idea that there is a universal stable category woman, 
right? Because it's the, essentialism is this taboo in, in feminist thought. And so that creates this situation where woman is used as a term in a nominal way as more of a category that's convenient for political organizing. And so I think that allergy to essentialism is one of the things that has has led. But I think probably more significantly, I see the connection in the use of technology, especially exogenous hormones to disrupt normal physiology and that being seen as like women's liberation. And so women to be successful in society, to be fully formed human beings, they, they essentially need to go to war with their own bodies and use technology to control and resist their, their natural physiology. And that is, you know, that that's exactly, I think what the transgender movement is seeking to do, right. To completely liberate this self-determining will from the natural limits, especially when it comes to fertility and sexuality. So I, yeah, I, I think there's something to that argument, even though I know a lot of, of radical feminists would really not agree with me on that. Right. So I posed the same question of Michael Hanby in a podcast recently, who, I don't know if you know Michael, he's a Catholic U and he's very interested in the question of technology and ontology. So how does our access to technology sort of change the way we see the world, right? And so what came first, the belief that someone with a penis could be a woman or the surgery necessary to make that possible, the surgery and the medication to make that possible? Do we have that belief in search of a technology? Do we have a technology that then changed our understanding of the essence of what it meant to be a woman? I think if I had to choose one, it would be the technology that makes it possible, or at least the technology that, because it's not a promise that's fulfilled, right? But it's this, you know, it's because I, one of the first people who attempted to transition, gosh, now I can't remember his original name, George, George something, but his female name was Lily Elba, right? And Elba tried to transition. And this was, this was back in the kind of pre- pre-Nazi Germany, when there was a lot of kind of experimentation on kind of gender and sexuality happening. And they tried to implant a uterus in Elba and that killed her. So, but one of the things, one of the arguments I make in the book is that it's interesting to me that Elba thought she needed a uterus to be a real woman, right? Because fast forward to the fifties and the sixties, when we have kind of the first transsexual celebrity, Christine Jorgensen, at that point, we had developed the technology to manipulate hormones. And also we had become a contraceptive society. And so what transition looked like then had nothing to do with organ transplants or the potential adopting the the procreative potential of the opposite sex. It all had to do with secondary sex characteristics. So one of the arguments I make is that contraception has shifted our cultural imagination about what it even means to be a woman and what it even means to be a man. So we no longer, when we think about what it is to be a woman, we no longer think about this innate potential for gestation and motherhood. Now it's much more about like boobs and high heels and, you know, a particular social role or behavior. It's like this aesthetic. It's like this avatar. And I think that that shift was driven by technology. And I think that someone like Elba, even though, you know, this person might have been, you know, gender nonconforming or having some kind of gender, what we would now call gender dysphoria, the possibility, the technological possibility, the fact that there was a clinic that said we can offer this kind of surgery. I think that's what really opened the door 
to this becoming possible. And then these other shifts, conceptual as well as technological, made that seem more and more plausible to the average person. I want to talk a little bit about Tumblr. So to what extent is trans feminism, at least as it's understood and manifested now, a product of Tumblr as opposed to academia? So did something enter Tumblr and emerge as something else? Or is it just an, a, a popularization and amplification of what was happening in the academy? I love that you asked me this question because I have been researching this exact question and I want to write about it because I think, you know, of all the threads that I trace in the book, this shift from Butler, gender social construct, anti-realism to gender identity theory realism is still something I'm like, what's going on here? What changed, right? I mean, I'm doing gender, academic gender studies and like, let's see, I finished my PhD in 2011. And then, you know, and this stuff wasn't nearly quite as prominent as it was. And then I remember distinctly, actually, once I was teaching gender theory, I remember a shift happening between teaching gender theory class spring of 2013 and teaching it next fall of 2014. And the shift was that previous to that fall 2014 class, I had to, like, all the the kind of jargon was introduced through me. Like, I, you know, introduced the concept of heteronormativity and taught them what that meant, right? But what I noticed in beginning in the fall of 2014, but then was really pronounced in 2016, was that students came into the classroom with their own jargon. So they were already familiar with, you know, heteronormativity, genderqueer, you know, some of these academic terms, but they brought this whole new jargon that I didn't understand. And I was like, wait, what are you, what are you talking about? Like demisexual, like, let me Google this really quick, you know? And so one of the ways I've been researching this is through the Google Ngram, which is basically, you can, you know what I'm talking about? You can just search any, it's so, it's so fun. You can search any word or phrase and it will show this graph of how of the frequency of that phrase being used in publications and you can set the date range right and these are published works so not online necessarily but so what i started to do is i would search words that i knew originated in academic contexts like heteronormativity for example or gender queer so a lot of the queer theory terms originated in academia and sure enough you can see a graph that like you know kind of like slowly goes higher through the 90s and then into the 2000s begins to increase. But when you search a term like non-binary, right, which is not originally an academic term or something like agender or asexual, then it's like a flat line until right about 2012 and then it just spikes up. So I think that absolutely, not only is there this trickle down Judith Butler, like I argue in my book, but there's this other phenomenon of trickle up Tumblr. And so what I think happened, and again, I'm still trying to understand this phenomenon, but I think in, like, Tumblr was unique in social media platforms in that things like Facebook, for example, when they first originated, your social network was connected to your network in the real world, Right. And oftentimes you, to connect with people on Facebook, you had to be part of the same institution. But Tumblr was a place where you had people of all ages engaging over shared interests like fandoms. And so you had a lot of adult, teenager, adult, young person interaction, a lot of highly sexualized content that was unregulated, a lot of adult content. And I think it created this incubator for these kind of obscure anti-realist gender theory terms to trickle down. But then they like, changed forms and proliferated into all these strange directions. And 
Tumblr as this micro blogging platform is very, it's all about hyper categorization too. So like any little post you write, it'll be tagged like with 10 different labels, right? So I think there, this hyper labeling of gender and all these Tumblr genders, so to speak, I think that 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 really took off. And so now I would say my, my current hypothesis is that the current field of gender studies and the institutions that use gender theory are probably more shaped by 15-year-old girls on Tumblr in 2013 than they are shaped by high academic gender theory. That's my current hypothesis. Interesting. So in one of my classes, it's called uh, Public Policy and Human Flourishing. One thing I'm talking a lot about is what's coming after liberalism, right? Reading particularly Patanin. I'm having them read Patanin right now. And I make the case in class that capitalism and transfeminism are very closely linked phenomena, right? At least in the attempt for us to break down the bounds of nature. They cannot see it. They cannot see it because they hate capitalism, but they're also very much in favor of transfeminism. How do you respond to that connection that I make between capitalism and transfeminism? I mean, I would say it's so clear that there's a connection there, that transfeminism is so highly influenced by consumerism, where the body itself becomes this consumerist object that you change and alter. And I think these desires are being created for things, right? There's like a demand and supply thing happening, right? Like there's a demand that's being created for, say, facial feminization surgery, right? And suddenly it's like something you can buy, right? These, these body modifications, you can, every, you know, everything that you hate about yourself and want to change, you can now, you know, you can change through buying those procedures, right? Of course, there's also this effort to have those procedures covered by insurance or, you know, subsidized healthcare, right? But I think when, like, I'm working on a piece right now that's analyzing a presentation from the last fall, the WPATH conference there, and it's about adolescent transition, but they taught, they're offering, it's this group of clinicians and they're offering this new framework for adolescent assessment prior to gender transition. And they're bas- they basically, they explicitly say, this shouldn't be about identity. This should be about embodiment goals. So you should ask the child, and they use the word child, you should ask the child, so what do you like about how you're showing up in the world right now? What do you not like? What do you wish was different? No boobs, less boobs more hair, less hair. Like, I'm not even kidding. Like, I'm, I'm going to title the piece more boob, less boob, <laughs> question mark, you know, because it's such an evocative quote. But just listening to that, I'm thinking like, this is an ideation session between an adult clinician and a child about all the different kinds of body modifications that they could possibly get. And then that's packaged as medically necessary treatment. And then there's a hell of a lot of money that can be made off of that child, especially if there's thousands of them. So yeah, I mean, this this phenomenon is a money maker, and that's well, Ivan Illich says the best technology is the one that both creates a problem and solves it in one fell swoop, and, and that boom. seems to be ap- ap- applicable here. That's exactly what's happening. Yes. So I want to, I want you to opine a little bit about the future of the gender paradigm in the United States and across the world. So I want to put it within the context of a couple of trends. First, the rising number of Latinos and Asians as a proportion of the U.S. population, rise of China as the new pole of international influence, softening of Europeans to the most radical forms of gender ideology. At least it seems to me that that's happening in Europe. So it seems to me that white progressive Americans' sway and influence over culture and politics is likely to ebb in the next 30 years, particularly on this issue. 
How does this potential decline in the capacity of white progressive America to project soft power of the world impact the power of the gender paradigm into the future? I love that question. Yeah, but people often ask, like, what's going to happen in the future? <laughs> like, I don't know. I think that I don't think the gender paradigm will go away. Like, you know, I don't. I think that now that we have this technology for this kind of body modification, that there will always be a market for it, and there will always be people who choose to participate in that. What I do see changing, however, is the idea that that is medical care, right? This is already shifting in Europe. I don't know if that's what you were alluding to, but right. a lot of a lot of European countries like Sweden, most recently Norway, Finland, the UK, France, at least when it comes to youth gender transition, have really almost entirely put the brakes on medical transition for young people. So I do think we're going to see that change. The transing of children and adolescents, I think, will change. But I think that there will still be an adult population that opts into this. So, but I, in terms of like the, the cultural, I don't know, in terms, I guess, of the, yeah, it it seems, I wonder if it's like kind of peaking now. I don't know. It feels like it's such a fever pitch right now. And it, it seems like it just can't stay at this, at this kind of level. And the further they push certain boundaries, like even in the U.S., the sports thing, you know, seemed to be what really bothered a lot of, you know, so normies, so to speak. So I think the, and actually I'm kind of hoping that these clinicians that I was just talking about who are like, it's not about identity. It's about embodiment goals. I was like, oh, can I give you a megaphone? And can I have you say that on camera? Cause that would be really helpful. Thank you. If you would just say that so that everyone can hear that this actually isn't about identity, right? That that's just, you know, part of the, the story that's being told. And I, cause I think that narrative would be much less palatable to really anyone except an already committed transhumanist. So I'm shift gears a little bit and talk about the two words you put together, Catholic feminism. What do you mean when you say Catholic feminism? Yes, I think that's a great question. I think in general, feminist theory tends not to have, it tends to be grafted onto other philosophical systems. It doesn't have, that's why you have so many different kinds of feminism, right? You have like Marxist feminism, you have liberal feminism, you have postmodern feminism. So when I say Catholic feminism, what I mean is that the roots are a Catholic understanding of reality that takes seriously Catholic anthropology, the you know divine revelation through through scripture and tradition, that does not have a relationship of suspicion toward those things or deconstruction towards those things, but actually wants to genuinely think with them and in harmony with them. And that's where I think that, that when I say Catholic feminism, it would be different than say, you know, a feminine, you know, just just by looking at the kinds of events that they host that are always pro-abortion, always kind of pro-gender paradigm, right? There's not like, there's no critical reflection there. It's just, they're all in on the on the typical progressive feminist gender theory bandwagon, right? And so I think, I think I'm just coming, I'm coming, you know, I'm coming from different premises. Right. It sounds like you're trying to speak to the general public, as you said, but also within Christianity, what do you have to offer other Christians? I'm talking Protestants here. What, when, you, when we put the tag Catholic, what, what, how can you be helpful to other uh, Protestant Christians? I think most of the arguments I'm making are Christian and not necessarily specifically Catholic. And that's one reason why the, the subtitle of my book is A Christian Theory. There are times I think where, you know, maybe what I'm saying about sacramental theology or redemptive suffering 
or certainly Mary, right, where I kind of veer into more specifically Catholic territory. But in terms of like Christian anthropology, in terms of the deeper meaning of what Genesis reveals about sexual difference, like all of that is is Christian, right? Not just Catholic. And I've been I've been encouraged to see in more and more in Protestant contexts a incorporation of theology of the body. But that is definitely happening. And I think it's great. I'm actually kind of shocked at how many requests I get from evangelicals to speak. So I think I think it actually helps in a way that I'm like bilingual, so to speak. Like I grew up evangelical, now I'm Catholic. I mostly worked in a in an evangelical setting as an academic though. And I think the fact that I've also been a committed postmodern progressive feminist, right? Like I've I've inhabited all of these spheres before. And I, so what my goal I think when especially when I think about what to offer a Christian audience are kind of two things. One to just help people better navigate the current conversation with more confidence because I think it's so confusing and there's it's changing so quickly and it's just disorienting. And so I think a lot of people are like, what's happening? What do we do? Right. So just to kind of help people like, okay, let me explain a little bit more about what's going on to help get more confidence. But I think even more importantly, and this was my main aim in writing the book, The Genesis of Gender, I really wanted to articulate that I see this in evangelicalism a lot. I, I think evangelicalism is actually kind of in a crisis at the moment. And I wanted to articulate that if you do embrace the gender paradigm in an ideological way, you will be departing from a Christian paradigm. Like it, there, are, there are places where they are incommensurable. And that's something that I think a lot of Christians, in, especially in traditions that don't really have much of a tradition, where it's so much about like how you interpret this verse and how you interpret that verse. And so I would see it a lot in my students as well, the just kind of like slippage from evangelicalism into a progressive form of Christianity that's so progressive that it's no longer recognizably Christian. And so I guess I wanted to articulate like, you know, you're an existentially free being. You get to choose what you believe, but you can't believe both these things. So speaking of Catholic hot takes, in what ways are vasectomies in some way conceptually consistent with gender affirming surgery. Yeah, I mean it's the same it's the same argument about contraception, really. It's there's a part of there's a natural limit imposed by my body that I don't like that is inconveniencing to me and is somehow in, inhibiting my quote unquote freedom. And so I'm going to technologically create disorder in my body in order to allow a greater permissiveness to my will and my desires. And, you know, I understand too, like there are sometimes like very grave reasons why faithful, you know, it's not just this flippant, like for some people it is, you know, I think it's pretty standard, like, oh, well, I've had three kids, time to snip it, you know, but I know some Catholics who have like very grave and difficult situations to navigate in terms of pregnancy being life-threatening. So I'm not trying to be trivial here, but I will say you know, working on this gender stuff, I do see those things as so connected, like either sterilization for straight couples or just contracepting in general, that I'm like, if I'm, you know, for me, it's like, if I'm going to be making publicly these arguments that this isn't good, I sure as hell better be living up to that in my personal life. Right. So for me, it's like, there's almost this sense of like, you know, this consistency and solidarity. Like I'm not, you know, it, it, it can be tempting to just want to go along with 
what everyone else is doing. Although I have to say, since I've been on birth control as, you know, before I became Catholic for like 10 years, it's nice because I don't romanticize it. And so I'll tell my Catholic friends sometimes where they're like, oh, I wish I could just get on the pill. And I'm like, actually, you'll kind of be depressed and you won't want to have sex anyway. So, (laughs) you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, your understanding of, you know, womanhood has certainly evolved over time and seems to be at least partially linked biographically with your own pregnancies. At least that's the sense that I got from your book. So given how tied your definition of womanhood is to your own pregnancies, how might those incapable of childbirth understand their own womanhood sort of consistently with the way that you you describe these things? Yeah. In some ways, I think like my pregnancies, I think some of the reasons they were affecting or effective in some ways were a deeper conversion is more about suffering than about pregnancy per se. Like pregnancy is just a really good source of fruitful suffering. Right, right, right. So I would say the very like very Catholic, but also like kind of depressing thing like, but you can suffer too in other ways, right? But I, I have more to say. One, I think it's really important to realize that when I talk about generativity, when I talk about procreative potential, that potential exists and every woman has it, whether or not it's ever fully actualized in childbirth. So even the category of being infertile, and again, infertility is such a painful experience and a, an acute source of suffering, right? But again, I think that suffering can be fruitful. So it's important to realize, though, that being infertile does not in any way make make one less of a woman, because the very category of infertility is pointing toward an innate potential that a woman has that for some reason is being prevented from being actualized, right? So the question then becomes, because I think every woman then, whether she's able to biologically reproduce or not, every woman is called to live out the vocation of motherhood. So what does that look like in your particular context? What does that look like in your circumstances right now? There's a profound spiritual reality to motherhood. You know, if you think about someone like Mother Teresa, right? We even called her Mother Teresa. Like, wow, what an icon of the profound power and holiness of spiritual motherhood, right? So I think I think it's really important to tell every woman that like there is this gift of motherhood that you are called to bring to the world and what that looks like will really vary from women to women, will vary from season to season in a woman's life, right? So I would I would still say that there is this call, this is this vocation of our nature to motherhood and to live out that love in a variety of ways. And so I guess I would say like you're still called to that. And so discern what that what God is calling you to because with this and the, and that he any cross that he gives, he can make fruitful. And so praying how, you know, praying for that suffering to be fruitful as well. I mean, I think that's probably the most powerful prayer I've ever prayed. So my last question is very personal for me. So I have a 12-year-old daughter and all the joys and sufferings that that entails, both for her and for her parents. So is alienation from one's body a natural part of adolescence for girls? And what can I do, or probably better, what can my wife do to help her feel less alienated from herself during these years? Because she's particularly vulnerable to these challenges that emerge in adolescence as we sort of are trying to get used to these new bodies that we have. What can parents do to help, particularly girls in in these moments, again, feel less alienated from their bodies? Or do we just help them suffer through it? I think it's probably both and, right? I do think that there's something, not necessarily inevitable, but I would say pretty typical. A typical experience of puberty is to feel a sense of alienation from one's suddenly rapidly changing body. And with those changes, a change in how you are perceived and treated in society. And that is like incredibly disrupting, right? It's funny. I have this random memory 
of being like in a car as like a teenager and suddenly looking down at my lap and just seeing my legs, my thighs, like taking up so much more room than they ever had and just feeling like disgust. And also just like, this is, these are not my legs, (laughs) you know, like, I don't know what these are, but this is not me, you know, so that, and similar dysphoria surrounding breast development. So I do think that that's a very typical female experience. And so one thing is to just even speak that, right? That, yeah, like what you're going through, like it's, it's a rough road, like it's turbulent, but it doesn't last forever. You know, I think that this dissociation from the body can be really worsened by too much immersion in online realities, which also create a sense of dissociation from bodily reality. So if there are things that she likes to do that involve using her body in positive ways, like whether that's sports or art or, you know, some kinds of activity, I think really encouraging those things. Like I, I was super athletic as a teenager and I think that helped enormously just to like get out some aggression too, you know, and just, I think I had a positive sense of like my body in terms of its strength and its capacities there that now if I, you know, now if I imagine like feeling the way that I did and then just kind of being like immersed in social media all the time, like that just sounds like a recipe for hell. So that's one, that's one suggestion. But also, yeah, sometimes I wonder too, if we aren't teaching young people how to suffer well as parents, we're just so distressed at the thought that our children could suffer. And we also live in this bizarrely novel historical moment where we can imagine the possibility of a life without suffering, even of course, that's not actually going to happen. But still, I think in prior historical periods, suffering was so ever present that there was never this like, wow, maybe if I just play my cards right, my child will always be happy. So I think that's like a false temptation we can fall into as parents. And so thinking about like, okay, how do I help my adolescent, my child, whatever, like suffer well? And puberty provides a lot of occasion for that. (laughs) So good luck to you. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. So Abigail, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. This has been a really, really fruitful conversation. And I, a lot of my friends have been asking me when I'm going to do this interview because they've found your book to be so helpful and they wanted to hear us in conversation. So uh, thanks so much for your great work. Thanks so much for giving me some time. And I really appreciate it. Yeah, this was great. And I appreciate the work you're doing too. I really uh, have enjoyed the interviews you've done that I've listened to. Oh, good. Well, thank you. You're really good at this. Interviewing is hard, but you're like, you're really talented. Yeah. Oh, gosh. It's hard to do, harder than it looks. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at beatriceinstitute.org. That's beatriceinstitute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God.